wanted to just share one thing with you before I introduce Adam Flint. Uh, he's going to bring the word this morning. But I want to say this. If you're new with us, first, welcome. We are so glad that you here are here. My name is Luke. The second thing is, is we are still short, and I'm not going to preach on it this morning, so you can be glad about that. Maybe next week I'll touch on it. But we are still short in kids' ministry for people serving in that capacity. We've had people that said they want to serve. We have not received their ministry applications yet. Um, and some people that were unable to. All that to say, if we don't have enough people, then we can't open the kids' classrooms, and therefore those kids aren't hearing the gospel, and we can't pour into the next generation. So if that is something that you are interested in, I promise you it will be an extreme blessing to you, and we would love it if you would fill out a Connect card and put it in the box. We'll talk about this more next week. But all that's to say is that our kids in this church, we pour into because we believe that they're the next generation. And if we're not going to pour into them, who else will? And so I just want to say two things. One, thank you for all of you that invest your time and serve. I think we have 54 volunteers serving in kids ministry currently, and it's still not enough. But for those who are serving in it, thank you for giving your time because, honestly, it's not possible without you and our kids would not be invested in. Um, and so, yeah, it's awesome what God is doing in there. But we need more help. Allison told me the next quarter is looking a whole lot like Swiss cheese. That is not good. That means there are many holes depending on the kind of Swiss cheese that you eat. All that to say, we would love for you to serve in that capacity if you can. I'll talk about it next week. Without further ado, I want to introduce Adam Flint. It's actually Dr. Adam Flint, actually. Um, Adam is the executive pastor of church multiplication from the Church of 1122 in Jacksonville, Florida. The Church of 1122 means something very dear to us at Veneration because, man, they invest in us. They pour into me as a leader, into us as a church. Um, their senior pastor currently sits on our board of directors right now. Uh, we just love Adam and the Church of 1122. They are literally like family. And so Adam has come to preach this morning to see what God is doing. And if you guys wouldn't mind to give him a warm welcome, um, Adam Flint. Thanks, ma'am. Yeah, love it. Love it. How's everybody doing this morning? You good? Good. Hey, we love being here. Uh, my daughter Sophie came with me, my 16-year-old daughter. So whatever else happens, whether you like me or not, I feel like I'm winning as a dad because my 16-year-old daughter wanted to go on a trip with me. So um, uh, it, it, this is really something special. You should know that um, in, the, in the world of church planting uh, what God is doing in and through you all and among you all is something really, really incredible. And so it's a special thing. Don't take it for granted. It is not normal what God is doing here. Um, if you got a Bible, go to John chapter 11. Uh, John chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the, the first four books in the New Testament of the Bible. And while you're getting there, um, I'll tell you a little bit of a story about 18 months ago, I started having this weird back pain. I thought I had pulled a muscle paddleboarding, and, uh, and then I started getting this weird pain in my chest, and so I, I Googled it, which is what you should never do when you have symptoms. <laughs> and 
when I when I googled it, it said heartburn or indigestion, and so I'd never had heartburn or indigestion. So I took some Tums, and that didn't work. And then one day, my my wife Kristen, we were sitting there, and she just looked at me, and kind of out of the blue, she turned to me, and she's like, "Would you quit coughing? We're in the middle of a pandemic." And I just went, I had no idea I was coughing all the time. And I was <clears throat> like clearing my throat like that. And so I went back again, you shouldn't do this. And I Googled like coughing, chest pain, back pain. Again, it said heartburn and indigestion. So I went to the grocery store and went and got some of the like over the counter Prilosec or whatever that stuff is. And I took it for a few weeks. It didn't do anything. I went to the, the finally made an appointment with a gastro guy and he said, no, you should, that stuff's junk. Take this. And he gives me a prescription. And I take it for like a month. It didn't do anything. So I go in, have a scan done because they just wanted to check and make sure everything was okay. It was a Friday afternoon. They had the scan done. We get home, Kristen and I get home, and we're kind of sitting in our kitchen. And we have one of those bars that separates like our breakfast room from the sink and the kitchen and everything. And Kristen's on one side and I'm on the other. And my phone's sitting there and we're just talking. And then all of a sudden my phone rings. And I look down and it's the number of the doctor. Now listen, if you're a doctor, I'm sorry, but you all don't ever call anybody back, ever. <laughs> and so to get a call like 30 minutes after I'd had this scan, we both looked at each other and we were like, uh-oh. So the, we answer the phone and the doctor says, we need, you to, we need you to come back right now, or actually tomorrow morning, it's Friday. I'm like, tomorrow's Saturday. He's like, yeah, I'll be in the office at 6.45 or 7.00. I'd like you to come in. We need to do some more scans. And I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Put them on speaker. And I said, what are we, what are we talking about? And he said, well, we, th we think we found a mass in your esophagus. And we're like, uh-oh. Okay. So we went in. They did the scans. They, they found out it wasn't actually, like, they thought it was esophageal cancer. It wasn't esophageal cancer. They found out it was a tumor about the size of my forefinger, and it was growing from the front, like from where your thyroid is, across my vocal nerve, which this is what I do for a living, okay? I'm a one-trick pony. It's like I talk, so when things grow over your vocal nerve, that gets bad. And it was growing over my vocal nerve, which is why I was coughing all the time, and then it was growing back to my spine, which is why it was hurting all the time. So for about three or four months, we go through the whole diagnosis and all that sort of stuff, and then a year ago yesterday, I had surgery, and they took out uh, what ended up not being one tumor, but two tumors. They ended up not being benign, as they had told us, it ended up being cancer. And by God's grace, everything's fine, healed. I have an awesome scar now on my neck. It's really cool. But I'll tell you, for the last, that six months was probably one of the hardest times that I've ever been through. It, it really was, it was, it was suffering. It was legitimate suffering. Now, when I say it's suffering, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question, and after I've told you that I've had cancer, you're going to not want to answer this question. But don't compare what I'm about to ask to what I had and all that sort of stuff. But have you ever, have you ever suffered in any way, shape, or form? Raise your hand. Come on, raise them up high. The rest of you are lying in church. <laughs> I mean... Jesus said in John 16, in this life, you will have trouble. Like, we love some promises of Jesus, don't we? Like, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you forever until we get to that one. And then we're like, you can have that promise. 
But the truth of the truth of life is you have either you are right now or the bad news is you're about to step into some kind of suffering. And suffering is one of the most profound questions. Suffering and God and how those things work together are really one of the most profound questions that we can have. And for most of us, what we're really worried about is how we get rid of our suffering, right? So we'll do, th we'll do things like we'll just deny it. How are you doing? Blessed and highly favored, you know. No, you're not. You're suffering. Or, you know, we'll, we'll shove it down deep or we'll compare it to somebody else's and we'll kind of minimize it or we'll ignore it and hope it goes away. I mean, all those things, all those things are like taking a beach ball. Have you ever taken a beach ball and in the pool or in the ocean and you shove it down underwater? Right? For, for a little bit, you can kind of hold that beach ball underwater, right? And then after a minute or two, you're like, uh-oh. And then when you let go, the beach ball doesn't just kind of like come gently up to the surface, does it? It comes erupting up out of the surface. And when, when we try to push down and deny or ignore or minimize the suffering, whatever it is in our lives, eventually it comes erupting back up. And so what most of us do, I mean, if you go and, again, if you'll Google ways to cope with suffering, you will find thousands and thousands and thousands of articles on good advice, some of which is fine. But in the middle of suffering, whether you're suffering or somebody you know is suffering, good advice isn't really helpful. What we really need is good news in the middle of our suffering more than we need good advice. And I think the question that we're really asking in the middle of our suffering is, Jesus, what are you doing right now in the middle of my suffering? That's the real question. And so today what I want to do is, well, I'm gonna, we're going to walk through John chapter 11 and I want to I answer that question, Jesus, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? And if we have time, uh, I think we'll get to about seven things. So you're going to have to listen fast because we're going to study a whole, a whole chapter in the Bible today. So in John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And do, you, do you see that? Right next to each other, it says, Jesus, he whom you love is ill. I mean, he'll say it again in verse 5. He'll say it a little further down in verse 36. Love, God's love, and our suffering are not mutually exclusive to one another. They, they can exist in the same space. He whom you love is ill. The guy that you love is suffering. And so the, the first thing is this, that Jesus is endlessly loving us in our suffering. Jesus is endlessly loving us in our suffering. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, it says, God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says 
that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you take all of those things together, that God is love, God is loving you with an everlasting love, and God never changes, that means that our circumstances don't dictate how God feels to us. That, that our, situ- our suffering is not a statement. It's not a statement of God's absence in our life. God has not stopped loving us. God has not forgotten you. In the middle of your suffering, no matter what you are going through, Jesus is endlessly loving us in our suffering. We have a, we have a son. He's in college now, but when he was little, he broke his arm twice. And one of the times that he broke his arm, he broke his arm playing football one time when he was about seven or eight years old. And another time, he had a set of bunk beds in his room, and he would always sleep on the bottom bunk bed. But one night, we're asleep. It's in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, we wake up to this giant, like, thud. Well, that didn't make enough noise. Thud. And then there was that scream. And parents, you know, you know the different screams, right? There's the, like, I'm not really hurt, but I really want your attention. Come see me. And then there's, like, uh-oh, this has gone terribly wrong. And we wake up to that blood-curdling scream. It's like two in the morning. And he had fallen out in his sleep, fallen out of the top bunk of his bunk bed and woke up to landing on the ground and breaking his arm. And here's what I know you're thinking right now. Why don't you have bed rails on the bunk bed? (laughs) We we had bed rails on the bunk bed. Actually, we we had bed rails. They were in the closet. So... Little piece of advice, it's not enough to own the bed rails, you have to actually use the bed rails. But here's the question I have for you. Does the fact that Gavin fell out of his bed and broke his arm, does that dictate how I feel about him? When he fell out of his bed, did I stop loving him anymore? No. As his dad, the suffering he was going through, it did not diminish how I felt about him at all. And so Jesus is endlessly loving us in our suffering. How do you know that? How can I stand here this morning and look at you without knowing what most of you are going through in your suffering and just point blank say, Jesus loves you in your suffering? The definitive way that you know that Jesus loves you no matter what is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not your situation that determines how God feels about you. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is no greater statement, there's no greater suffering through which a declaration of God's love happens than the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on in verse 4, and it says, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Now that's a, that's a bold promise right there. And Jesus just looks at him and goes, this is not going to end in death. Now if you've ever heard this story, what happens to Lazarus? Come on, what happens to Lazarus? He dies. He dies. So in the middle of their suffering, It looks like Jesus isn't keeping any of his promises. He goes, this isn't going to lead to death, and then it goes to death. Spoiler alert, you're going to see at the end of the story, Jesus raises Lazarus, raises him back up from the dead. 
And so the second thing is this. Jesus is faithfully keeping all of his promises in our suffering. He's faithfully keeping all of his promises in our suffering. One of the hardest things for me in the middle of all of the diagnosing and having cancer and treatment and all that kind of thing was that when people would find out about it, and I know they meant well, I really did, they, I know they went well, but they would sort of go to this like hallmark gloss over it, like, like oh, it's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. God's got it. It's, you know, it's, God's going to handle it. God's going to take it away. And all of that may be true, but what was, what was really going on, it was, it was almost as if they were scared of what was actually really happening. And they were sort of using this to gloss over it. And they wanted to sort of ignore that suffering was happening because it really hurt and it was really painful for them. But the good news of the gospel is that, that you can lean into the reality of what is going on in your suffering because the promises of God are always true. They're always true. And the question is, if you know that Jesus is endlessly loving you in your suffering because of the cross, how do you know that Jesus is always keeping every single one of his promises? It's the resurrection. It's what we just celebrated last Easter. The resurrection is a declaration of God to say, no matter what it looks like, I will always keep my promises to you. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, and he says that every single one of God's promises is yes in Jesus Christ. And the way that you can know that they are always yes, no matter how much suffering you're going through, is not your situation. Your situation does not determine whether Jesus is keeping his promises to you. The resurrection determines whether Jesus is keeping his promises to you. Which means you can actually say, I am really suffering right now. And Jesus is going to keep all of his promises to me. I have a friend that, that in the middle of my cancer looked at me and he said, Adam, it seems like you're always praying the problem. Pray the promises of God. He said, it seems like you're always praying about the thing and you never actually talk to God about what he said about the thing you're going through. And so what would it look like for us to lean into the fact that Jesus is keeping his promises and just saying, Jesus, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm just praying the promises that you made to me and bought in your life, death, and resurrection, and then I'm just going gonna, gonna to lean into those and claim those in the middle of all my problem and all of my suffering. So he goes on, and he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for, you should circle that, it is for the glory of God, so that, circle that, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The glory of God is like, it's the weightiness of who God is. If you, if you took all of the, the characteristics and all the attributes and all the action and all the power and everything there is about God, and you brought it all and summed it all up, added it all together, the sum of who God is is greater than all those individual parts. That's the glory of God. And what Jesus is saying is this illness, this suffering, it's not devoid 
of the glory of God. It actually is for the glory of God. That, that our suffering, God somehow can leverage our suffering for his glory and for his fame and for his honor and for his renown. So the third thing is this, that in the middle of our suffering, Jesus is ultimately revealing God's glory. He's ultimately revealing God's glory. In John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying, he says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour that he's praying about is the hour of his death on the cross. The hour that he would bear the weight of the sin of the world. The hour that would be the greatest suffering the world has ever seen. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, whatever you do, it's not just whatever is good and whatever's fun and whatever's happy, but whatever, whatever happens in your life, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Think how, think how God-glorifying it would be that if in the middle of our suffering, we looked at God and we said, listen, God, I, I don't have anything else. Everything around me seems to be horrible. It seems to be terrible. It seems to be unbearable. But in the middle of it, you are more than enough for me. You are more than sufficient for me. You are the greatest prize in the middle of your What could be more God-glorifying to look at God and say, I'll take this if you get to be all-sufficient in my life in the middle of it. So he goes on, chapter 11, verse 5, and he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. How about that? He loved them so much that he hears about what they're suffering and he stays where he is. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews who were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? Jesus answered, now, I, we don't have time to get into this. I don't know what this answer has to do with anything. I'm sure it has to do with a lot, but it is, it's, he like takes a right-hand turn. And he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Like he's just talking about being stoned by rocks, and then he's going to go, there's 12 hours on the clock, right? Anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. <laughs> now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Which we should just stop and just say, if you find Jesus hard to understand and miss the point sometime... You would make a great disciple. 
They're like, oh, he's asleep. And then she's like, talking about death. So Jesus told them plainly, right? He just looks at him and he goes, okay, listen, Lazarus has died. He didn't get a nap. He's dead, okay? And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. That, that little phrase, for your sake, it literally means in the original language, it literally means for your good. He's saying, for your good, this is happening, and it's happening for your good. Which means that, Jesus, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? It's that Jesus is graciously working for your good in the middle of suffering. Yes, he's working for his glory, but he's also working for your good. Everything he is doing in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, everything he is doing in your life is for your good. Romans 8, 28. It says this, we know that in all things, all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So if you love Jesus, it means that everything God is doing in your life is for your good. He's working out everything, no matter, listen, no matter where suffering comes from. And we could, we could sit here and talk for hours about where suffering comes from. Honestly, a lot of suffering just comes because I do a bunch of stupid stuff and I cause myself to suffer. You do too. Welcome to church. Sometimes you suffer because somebody else does something stupid and you just are the collateral of that. Sometimes... You got an enemy that is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. Sometimes the, the wheels came off this creation after sin entered the world. And sometimes God is right there doing things that we can't figure out why it's happening in our life. But no matter why it's happening, the truth of the matter is, that God is always working for your good in the middle of it. There's a verse that I memorized and, and I held on to in, in kind of all the middle of going through cancer and treatment and all that kind of stuff. And it was in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And it begins this way. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, not the God of some grace, not the God of sometimes grace, the God of all grace, which means no matter what you and I are going through in our life, God is always acting graciously all the time towards his children. It's all grace all the time. Grace is, grace is the unearned love and favor and mercy and acceptance of God. And it's actually, it's actually not even just unearned, and it's not even really that it's undeserved. It's really that it's ill-deserved. You realize, right, that you and I, in our sin, apart from Christ, are enemies of God. 
that we're ill-deserving of anything good from God. But when he brings us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus into his family, and he causes us to be alive and brings us to faith and adopts us into his family, it means that you've been given grace. And grace is not fair. You, you and I actually don't want fair. <laughs> we want grace. I remember when, when Gavin and Sophie were really little, there was one time I went and I bought Sophie this dress. And it was, it was like, you know, I was like, Dad, I got a little girl. So I go and I buy her this, like, really cute dress. It was awesome. And I buy her this dress, and I wrap it up, and there was no real reason. I take it, and I give it to her, and unwrap it, and Gavin's over playing with his trucks or whatever on the floor. And I give her the dress, and she unwraps it, and she opens it, and she's like, oh, that, you know, gets all excited about the dress, and runs and puts on the dress, and comes out, and, like, twirls around, does all the things that little girls do when they put on brand new dresses. And Gavin, like, looks up, and he goes, that's not fair. To which, like, parent, like, you know, right? As soon as one kid declares that's not fair on mom and dad, you're like, okay, it's game on now. So I turned around to Gavin, and I was like, bud, you want fair? Let's go to the store. I'll buy you a dress, too. He's like, nah, that's cool. I'm good. Little, like, six-year-old. He's like, nope, that's good. You and I don't want fair. We don't want to get what we deserve. What we want is for God to be the God of all grace all the time towards us. We want what we don't deserve. We want what we're actually ill-deserving of. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, starting in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he re when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Let's skip down to verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is not punishing you in your suffering. Let me say that again. As a follower of Jesus, God is not punishing you. He may be disciplining you, but he's not punishing you. Disciplining is different, right? You know this. Disciplining is to train and to shape and to mold you into more of the image of who Jesus Christ is. And so as a follower of Jesus, God is not punishing you. The reason I can stand up here and say that beyond a shadow of a doubt and declare it just boldly as fact is because of this. When Jesus hung on the cross, he took all of our punishment. All of it. He drank dry the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Which means that if he did that, he is not making you pay for any more of your sins. He took them all. He who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. He 
did it all. He paid the price, which means God is not angry with you. God is not paying you back. God is not punishing you. He's disciplining you. He's shaping you. He's molding you to be more like Jesus. Conviction and correction are not the same thing as condemnation. God God may be convicting you of some things. He may be correcting some things, but he's not condemning you. Condemning is a building term. It means like not fit for use. But in Jesus Christ, you and I are a new creation. The old is gone. The old condemnable building is gone. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. So then he goes on. And here's what happens. Four days, we're going to skip down a little bit, but four days goes by. Lazarus has died. Four days goes by. Jesus shows up to Bethany, and the two sisters, Mary and Martha, are really, really hurting. And they both, when they see Jesus, they both say the exact same thing to Jesus. Look in verse 21 and verse 32. They both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what does Jesus do when they do that? I mean, does Jesus turn around and walk away from them? Does Jesus lay into them? Ungrateful, you know. No. What Jesus does is he meets each of those sisters in their own way. Martha starts in on this thing about the resurrection. She wants to have this theological discussion in the middle of her suffering that her brother has died. So she's like, hey, Jesus, um, you know, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But I understand there's going to be a resurrection one day. And on this mountain, different people are going to, you know, worship. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like, okay. If having a theological, if talking about some truths of God is going to comfort your soul, let's talk about that. And there's some of us that, that in the middle of our suffering, we need some truths about God to comfort our soul to give rest to our weary soul. Like some of you have had friends and family members that are close to you die, and you need to hear there is a resurrection, not just for Jesus, but Jesus is like the first fruits, and there is a day that is coming when they, that person in Christ will be raised from the dead, and they will live in the new heaven and the new earth with no more pain and no more tears and no more crying and no more sorrow ever again. And you need to let that truth comfort your soul. And then Mary shows up, and Mary just weeps. And what does Jesus do? He just weeps with her. He meets her right where she is. And so this is the other thing. Jesus is compassionately comforting us in our suffering. Hebrews says we don't have a high priest that's far off, that can't relate, and doesn't know what's going on. We actually have a high priest that can empathize with us, who's been through absolutely everything that you and I have gone through except for sin, which means he can sit, he can comfort you the way you need to be comforted in the moment of your suffering. The word comfort is literally the word splagizomai. Say, say that word with me, right? One, two, three. Say, splagizomai. Like, you could, you could almost feel it if you weren't just mumbling, like, you know. But it's like, splagizomai. And it means from the guts. 
And so when Jesus looks at these two sisters, he's feeling something deep down inside of his guts. He's looking at them in the middle of their suffering, and there's this thing that is just boiling up, coming up from the inside of him. And what is coming up from deep inside of who he is is utter compassion for them. And then verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a, co- a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, listen, if you were in church last week, this should start to sound really familiar. <laughs> like little, little alarms should start going off. Cave, tomb, stone, like. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Now Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, By this time, there'll be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. She's like, um, you roll that thing away, it's going to stink. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands, now now look at this. Like really look at what's going on here. If you've read this story before, most of us are like, Lazarus, come out. And we picture Lazarus like walking out, right? You just, Lazarus, come out, and then Lazarus comes out. But look what John says. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet are bound in linen strips. His face is wrapped with a cloth. The way they would bury them in that time, it was almost like mummification. They would take all of these linen strips and they would bind the body up and they would pack all these herbs and spices and oil and everything. You know, they would get them all packed in there and it would preserve the body. And so that's what had happened to him. And so he comes out like, like jumping out. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? Jesus is giving us a community to help us walk into new life in the middle of our suffering. He looks at the community and, they, and he says to them, unbind him. He's, he can't get himself undone in the middle of this thing he's going through. He needed some other people to come alongside of him and to unwind and unbind this thing so that he could walk into this new life that Jesus was calling him into. And the thing that happens most often in our suffering is we have a tendency to pull back, don't we? You're suffering and you're like, this is embarrassing. My marriage is on the rocks, and so I don't, I don't really, I don't want to tell anybody. And you take a step back. Or this is really personal. Like what's going on in my body is real, like seems really private. So you just kind of take a step back. Or everybody else seems to be having a hard time. This isn't really a big deal. And so you take a step back. This is the beauty of the church is that you would have a place to step into in the middle of your suffering and to have some people come up around you and love you and bear your burdens and support you and care for you and walk with you. That's why the church is not a country club. Being in a gym is a great reminder of that. The church is a hospital 
Church is a place for busted, broken, jacked up people to walk in and get unbound by some other people that'll care for them and love them and help them get healed and whole. How, how crazy would it have been when Gavin broke his arm if he had looked at me and gone, hey, you know what? It's a little embarrassing that I fell out of my bunk bed. How about we wait and see how this one pans out before we go to the doctor? That'd be ridiculous. No, you, you, that place was designed for healing. This place is designed for healing. So after I had surgery, it was one of the weirdest things. Like, I couldn't talk for a few days because it was on my vocal cord. I couldn't talk for a few days. And then for about a month, I couldn't sing. Now listen, just before we got, before I walked up here, my daughter so graciously said, hey, don't turn that microphone on too early. Nobody needs to hear you sing. <laughs> but it's true. I'm terrible. I got no pitch, no rhythm, no tempo, no nothing. But... It was, it was the weirdest thing. I would be sitting in worship. I usually sit like over here in our church, but I was sitting over here. I, was sit, I can remember it. We're sitting there and the, the worship starts, the singing starts and I go to sing and it's like, and like nothing comes out of my mouth. I, cu I couldn't get the nerve to like send the signal to make a sound come out. And I, re I remember thinking, oh God, What's going on? And I'm sitting down here, so I, I, I turn around and I look at our congregation and I remember just praying, God, would you take their singing and let it count for me as my singing? I, I, can't, I can't, God, I literally can't get the words out of my mouth, but I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't do for myself what I want to do. Would you take their worship and count it as my worship? I needed a congregation. You need a congregation. You need a group of people to rally around you. It's why being a part of a disciple group is so important. It's why serving is so important. Listen, yes, make sure babies don't die. That's critical. But do you know what happens when you begin to serve? You'll sit around for an hour, an hour and a half every Sunday with somebody else and you'll start talking about life and they'll start sharing about life and then they'll start to get to know you and you'll get to know them and then you'll build more trust and they'll build trust and then what ends up happening is you'll be able to go, hey, can I tell you what's going on? And you'll have the gift of a community that'll walk alongside of you. And then here's the last thing. Jesus is pointing us to the ultimate hope and healing found only in his life, death, and resurrection in the middle of our suffering. This whole story, not even a story, this whole account, this event, this was not about Lazarus. This whole thing was meant to point to the fact that Jesus was going to die on the cross and three days later not just be resuscitated. Think about that. Lazarus, like, they resuscitated him, but he had to die again, which had to be terrible, didn't it? Because at the end of his life, he's like, oh, God, I know how this feels. Here it comes again. None of you thought about sorry. That'll, like, ruin it for some of you. But this, this encounter, this event 
was meant to point us to the fact that Jesus is going to die on the cross and be raised to everlasting life. The whole thing is really about the fact that there is coming a day when there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. Revelation 21 actually tells us that Jesus himself is going to wipe away our tears. Think about it. There's coming a day when Jesus will come back resurrected. He will resurrect the dead. And those who are in Christ, you will have your tears, your pain, wiped away by Jesus himself. And so whether we get healed like we want it in this life, whether, whether the pain fully goes away from my cancer, there's coming a day when I will get healed. Whether, whether it comes back again or doesn't, there's coming a day when it will never come back again and there will be no question whether it's coming back again. And that is true for you in Jesus Christ. The hope of the resurrection is that there is promised healing, blood-bought, resurrected promise that there is a new heaven and a new earth. And if you are in Christ, you will be made whole forever. And so listen, here's, here's this. If you know somebody that's suffering right now, take them a casserole, okay? It's awesome. Get a casserole. But take them some of this good news. They need good news. They need somebody. It's as beautiful are the feet that bring good news. You know somebody that's suffering that needs to know they're not being punished. You know somebody that's suffering that needs to know that God is endlessly loving them. That he's caring compassionately for them. That they can lean into the promises of God for them. And if you're in the middle of suffering... Grab on to one of those and let it sink down deep in your soul. Let it give you rest for your weary soul. And if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want you this morning to say, God, maybe you've stayed away because you've had a problem with suffering. Maybe you couldn't, you couldn't work out how suffering and God, a good God and suffering in this world have worked out. And maybe for the first time you would realize, you know what? God and suffering are not against one another and they're not a problem for one another. God actually entered into the suffering of this world and he's at work in it. And maybe for the first time you would trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior that he loves you and cares for you and has an eternity of wholeness for you. And then the way we're going to end, I'm going to pray in a minute. So if the band wants to come on up, I'm going to pray in a minute. And when we, after I say amen, we're going to sing. And if you're suffering, we're going to have a few people up here. Whatever it is, it could be little, it could be big, you don't have to wait. But we, we're going to pray over you. So you can just come up and you can say, listen, I'm, I'm dealing with this. Or I have somebody that's dealing with this. Would you pray for me? And we're going to pray for you. Jesus says, confess to one another and you will be healed. 
So would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And right now, for the first time, you would like to declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you raise your hand for me so I can pray for you? Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for what you are doing in the middle of our suffering, that you are endlessly loving us. You are with us. You are compassionate. You are good. You are true. You care. And you are keeping every one of your promises. Lord, you are more than enough. You are sufficient for us to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Lord, would you be glorified in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship. And if you would like to come down and respond and be prayed over, we'll have people down front to pray for you.